so we're going to be, in, we're actually going to be doing some flipping this morning, but uh, we'll kind of be hanging out mostly in the Gospel of John uh, this morning. So um, I think all of us could probably be able to differentiate between knowing something and actually experiencing something. So I know being in a West Texas audience, not many of you guys are fans of ice hockey. I get it. Uh, there's not a sheet of ice within 100 miles of here. And so I, can, I, I grew up watching hockey, big Dallas Stars fans. We love it. And the Carroll household, yeah, I see one woo. Yes, got one woo. Um, so I, I could, we could be in a conversation together, and I could tell you about all the wonderful things about hockey. I can give you the most perfect explanation. I can just try to, as best as I can with my words, capture the essence of the game and how it's fun, it's intensity, uh, it's aggressive. It's just, I can, I can tell you all the things. And you, at the end of the conversation, might be like, oh, that's nice. It might just fall completely flat. Why? Because I venture to guess, most of us in here, especially if you're from San Angelo, like, hey, ice hockey's not a thing here, and I get it. Um, but if I were to tell you, all right, church family, tomorrow we're going to load up in the Rogue, which is what we drive, um, and we're going to drive to the American Airlines Center in Dallas, going to go see a Dallas Stars game, uh, and depending on if your pastor is cheap or not, which, side note, I am, um, you might have really good seats, and we're going to you know, bring you to this game so you can actually experience it. Now tell me, which one is better, me trying to talk to you about something or you actually getting to experience it? Especially if you're on the board. I mean, we've never sat in the front row. If you all have ever sat, I'm sure it's an amazing experience. But just like, it, it's, it's different. It's, it, it just is so fun. But the point is, like, experiencing something is way more different than, me, than just us hearing about it and, and knowing about it. Let me, or if we look at this another way, and this actually be, might be a little bit more relevant even to the direction where we're going this morning. Uh, think about just your world and, and just like, what, what is, think about a time that it just was incredibly difficult for you. Uh, some kind of suffering or some kind of pain or hard circumstance. What, what might be better is people sending you text messages. I mean, and this is a good thing. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. Just kind of follow some cliches or someone calling you like, hey, you're struggling, I know it's hard, uh, what time can I come over and just to be with you? Which one's better? For the most part, it's when we actually are in, when we have people stepping into our space and encouraging us, right? I know some of y'all introverts might be like, no, like the texts are better. Uh, I see y'all like looking around, I'm like, no, they're like the texts are better. But the point is, when we have people actually stepping into our experiences, stepping into our space, there's something that's felt uh, that's encouraging, that just is reminding us that we're not alone in whatever it is that we're going through. And so it's one of those things, as we look at the world, as we look at our own brokenness, as we look at the, the brokenness of this world, um, it's really easy for us to understand that, man, there is a sense in which we need a lot of help. There is a sense in which we need a lot of just of, of something uh, that to fix all the stuff that's going on around. Um, and, and what we celebrate in this Advent season isn't just this person in which we talk things about, oh, we list some facts about, but rather someone who actually stepped in and experienced the world as we also experience it. 
In his first letter, uh, the Apostle John, um, he's captured, he's, he's writing to this group of people who's undergoing this, this false belief that was floating around of people saying, hey, in order for you to know salvation and to speak, uh, to know, uh, to be saved, you have to attain this secret knowledge. You have to get, almost like get these secret codes to be able to be saved. And what John is doing, he's writing in contrast of that. And he uses this language that does not appeal to their minds, but rather appeals appeals to their senses, appeals to the actual word, world that they live in. He says in 1 John 1, 2, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life. What do you notice about John's words that he's using here? That which we have seen, that which we have touched, that which we have heard. What are all those? Those are sensory language. And what's he doing here? In 1 John, he's magnifying. Uh, he's magnifying what he said in his gospel, John 1.14, when he says, the word became flesh and the flesh dwelt among us. He's magnifying the reality that Christ, this word, wasn't from here, came here. And didn't just come here, but he lived in the space in which we lived. This word, he said he's magnifying this idea that he dwelt among us. And that's what we're leaning into this morning. This is the part of John that we're going to look into, that Jesus came to be with us, to dwell among us. And that word dwelled, um, what it actually means, is it's actually referring to some Old Testament language. The word itself means to pitch a tent. Or so it's kind of like this idea of a temporary thing. And so it's, it's referring back to the sanctuary, the tabernacle um, that uh, when Israel was wandering uh, through the desert, they would set up this tabernacle and the sanctuary would be the place in which the presence of God was uh, was. It was a symbol of the presence of God. And so he says, uh, so he, using this language that refers back to Exodus 25, uh, when, when Moses writes, he says, and let them, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And this tabernacle um, that would be pitched was moved around. And so this idea was that at wherever the tabernacle was, there was also the presence of God. And so when he's saying that he's dwelt among us all throughout John's gospel. So, so it's, well, first off, let me go back. Its idea is like it, the, when it, someone was pitched a tent, it was temporary. It would move. It would go from one place to another. So it wasn't like a permanent thing. And so all throughout John's gospel, what you see peppered throughout is this idea that Jesus, the word, uh, though he came to dwell among us, he really was coming to pitch a tent. He wasn't here. Uh, this wasn't his actual home. He says in John 6 that he says that Jesus was from heaven. He says in John 7 that, that God sent Jesus to this world. And then also in John 8, again, he says that Jesus, Jesus says that he is from above. So you see language all throughout the gospel of John, pepper throughout the John, of, of, that Jesus wasn't actually from this world. He, all things were created through him. He made all things, but he's not from this earth. He's from above. He is with God. But John, intent, like I said, John is intentionally using this language of dwelt to communicate what? 
He's communicating, as one commentator says it, he's communicating that the presence and glory that was once seen in the sanctuary of old is now seen in the person of Jesus. Let me say that again, that the presence and glory that was once seen in the sanctuary of old is now seen in the person of Jesus, God with us, God dwelling among us. And so Jesus dwelling and becoming a man uh, is a significant moment in history. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't just some uh, nice story, but this is a historical thing. Jesus actually came to this earth came uh, as a man, put on flesh like us. And as we think about Jesus coming to the earth, the important question for us to think about and not just give a cliche answer to is why? Because we can ask that question, why did Jesus come to this earth? And we can give a really snapshot answer and just move on. We need to look a little bit deeper as to why did Jesus come here? Why did he put on flesh? Why did he dwell among us? And so if you go back, actually go ahead and turn to the letter of 1 John, because first John and his letter actually is going to help us frame out the answer to this. Why did Jesus come and dwell among us? So we read verses 1 and 2 just a second ago. Let me read verse 2 again, and then we're also going to look at verse 3. He says that the life was made manifest, talking about Jesus, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Look at verse 3. So that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So why did God, a perfect and holy God, step into a not perfect world? John gives out two answers, and they're both rooted in this idea of fellowship. What is, what is fellowship? Fellowship is a word that we're very familiar with. It's a very churchy word. Um, it's very easy for us just to think, think, say it and just kind of move on. But what, is, what the word fellowship means, it's this deep association and partnership uh, with one another, oftentimes based on something common. It's a deep association uh, and intimacy. It speaks of just a, almost it's a very familial word. And it means uh, it's, it's this, this partnership that you might have with a group of people or somebody else um, that is based on something that is incredibly deep and profound. And so, so one of the things that I love about a really good concert um, is this, that in some ways, in a small way, you kind of get a picture of this. Uh, so last May, we got to go see uh, in Austin, one of my favorite bands, King's Kaleidoscope. And it was so fun. It, we were just in a flat room. Uh, I said no room. It was like an outdoor venue. Uh, There's about 300, or 300 to 400 people. It was stinky. It was hot. But it was so fun because we were all enjoying. We were all fellowshipping together. We were all enjoying this music that all of us really loved. I mean, if you've been to a good concert and like the people that you're sitting around, you have no idea who they are. You've never met them. But all of a sudden you have this deep bond with them um, because you're all sharing the same thing. Vicki, I'm seeing you nod your head because I know you recently went to an Elton John concert and I know you felt that, <laughs> right? There's this deep, deep like sharing of like this common interest that all of a sudden unites and brings together. 
And so on a much bigger scale, what John is doing when he's saying that, hey, that which you have heard and proclaimed, we, we proclaim these things so that we have fellowship, with, you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with Jesus. He's saying that, this, that we have as believers in Christ a fellowship with one another that is rooted in, with a fellowship with Christ. This union, this intimacy with Christ. And so we see these two things, and we're going to flush them out in just a minute. But what we, what we need to understand is, we are, the question we need to ask is, what needed to happen for us to experience this fellowship, this union, this relationship with God and with one another? What needed to happen for this to happen? John 1.14, the word needed to dwell among us. Why? Flip over to John 3, back to the gospel um, I'm John, uh, and turn to John 3, verses 16 through 18. We're going to keep digging. We're going to keep pulling the thread because I want us to see this layered answer as to why did Jesus need to dwell among us? So John 16, we're very familiar with it. A lot of us uh, have, you know, maybe this may have been the first verse that we may have heard, and it's a great one. Um, but the whole context of John 3 is, uh, is spectacular. Um, Jesus is in a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus is genuinely inquiring about who Jesus is. He's inquiring, like, hey, is this the Messiah that was prophesied from the Old Testament? And so he's in this conversation uh, with Nicodemus, and Jesus is in this, the middle of this conversation where Jesus says, starting in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of, in the, name of the only son of God. So what we see here is that verse 16 gives the synopsis as to why, uh, what, why Jesus needed to come down. And verses 17 through 18 give a bit of analysis. Look, look at verse 16. So what is the point of Jesus coming? You see that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not have, perish, but have what? Eternal life. So why did Jesus come? So that we might have eternal life. Now, pay attention to this for a second. This is incredibly important. Eternal life isn't something that we are just looking forward to, but it's something that is in the now. So out of love, so for God so loved the world, out of love, Jesus steps out of his world from being with the Father. He steps into our experience our world, our earth, so that we might eventually join him in his. Let me just say it again. Out of love, Jesus steps into our world, into our experience, so that we might eventually join him in his with eternal life. Paul says now, what is Jesus doing now? In Philippians 2, he is reigning with the Father. He is seated in the heavens. He is ruling with God the Father. And what Jesus is communicating in John 3.16 is that this eternal life, this presence with God that we get to experience is not just a future reality, though it is, but it is a present one. And the key, how we know this is this key word in verse 16, have. 
have right here is in the present active. So he says, the, so what Jesus is getting at is that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. So presence with the father begins at the moment of belief. Isn't that good news? It begins at the moment of belief. And it's, and so we live in a world, a lot of times when we think about this verse, we think about eternal life, we think just about the future reality. We just think about, um, man, one day I'm going to get to heaven. And, and praise God that we get to be in a, eventually get to be in a place where we get to not experience the, the effects of sin anymore. But let me tell you, friend, that your hope in Christ begins now because as when you believe in Jesus, you have the faith that was given to you now brings you into his presence. And so you get to begin this experience of eternal life now. And so, so we see that fellowship with Jesus, presence with him, is, is, is isn't just a future reality, but it's also a present one. And verse 17 through 18 provide a little bit more clarity. Let's read those again. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of Jesus. This is a point that we talk about a lot, and I think it's important that we continue to talk about. We li- you don't have to look very far um, to, to look that we live in a very broken world. right? We live in a world that is full of sin and corruption, all these different things. I think, it's a re- I think that's honestly a really easy thing for us to say. And we should be discerning. We should be admitting and be aware of the brokenness of the world. We should, you know, I understand like the sentiment of like, oh man, it's getting really bad out there. It's really easy for us just to stop at that point. But here's the thing. We shouldn't necessarily, one, we shouldn't expect the world to, to look like Jesus because they don't know Jesus. We shouldn't expect the world to behave and follow Jesus um, when they don't know him. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, that the ruler of this, like the, for whatever reason, Satan, though on a leash, still has some authority in this world. He's still ruling in some small capacity, ultimately under the sovereignty of God. But, and so like, because of that, evil and darkness are going to prevail. But what's also important for us to think about as, you know, I think making the assessment of the world is, is, is not a bad thing, but what we can often do when we do that is skip over our own hearts and be uh, ignorant of how our, the brokenness of our own lives is present. It's easy for us to look at how bad it is out there while neglecting how, man, bad it might be in here. Do you get tired from your sin? Do you feel the weight of it? Do you feel the weight of suffering? Do you feel the weight of just feeling weak and limited? Do you feel, uh, man, your own selfishness? I'll tell you this right now. My week, uh, if you want to know how selfish you are, get married. Um, I don't mean to make this a trite thing, but, but I mean, just this week alone, I've just seen how so much of what I do and what I say is, is, is about me and what I want and what I desire. And, and, and sometimes it doesn't, it, I don't even have to try to be selfish. It just flows out. Um, and so, so I don't mean to make this a light thing, but what we see, what does sin ultimately do? What does sin ultimately do? It, it separates us from God. It causes disharmony with God. It, it, it 
It, it ultimately uh, causes this separation. What does Jesus say in verse 18? What does sin do? It condemns us. Condemns us. And what, what, does, what, does, he, what does that mean? Condemns us to what? An eternal life is completely separated from God. Condemnation is the opposite of life. Sin is the opposite of life. Sin separates us from God. And here's what we have to understand. Hell is a sobering reality. It is a sobering reality, and it is the place where God is completely absent. Jesus spoke of it as a real place. And and here's the thing. We look in the world around us now. um, We experience the common grace of God in so many ways. Non-believers experience the common grace of God in so many ways, even though they don't acknowledge or worship him. We experience the presence of God uh, in a lot of ways because because he is the ultimate sovereign ruler. Um, Evil, our world is not as as dark and depraved as it could be because ultimately God is still somehow working all of it for the good of those who love him. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. But the reality is hell is a place where God is completely absent. The Bible uses all sorts of imagery about it, fire and darkness, um, but at the core, what is it? Uh, I love how Tim Keller says that. I think he phrases it in a way that's sobering but helpful. What then are the fire and darkness's symbols for? They are vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to the isolation and fire to the disintegration of being separated from God away from the favor and face of God, we literally, horrifically, and endlessly fall apart. This is what we're condemned to. This is what sin does. This is what separation looks like. And the sober, even deeper sobering reality is that there is nothing that we can do to escape this. There is nothing that we can do to escape this. Ephesians says that we are dead in our sins. What can a dead person do? Nothing. And this is why we take sin seriously, because its consequences are so seriously. But how do we we take sin seriously? Look at verse 18 again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. He says it twice in these verses that that Jesus came to bring salvation. Jesus came to ultimately fix this thing that was ultimately going to cause separation from him. How do we take sin seriously? We don't try harder. We don't try to perform better. We don't try to clean ourselves up. We can't do that enough. How many of you guys have ever been so played by the question, am I doing enough? I'm not doing enough. Whenever you know you've messed up, you try to clean yourself up, or you just wonder, have I done enough as a Christian today? Have I done enough as a husband today? Have I done enough as a fill-in-the-blank today? That question is going to plague us because ultimately what that question does is it causes us to look at ourselves and not to Jesus. We take sin seriously, not by looking at what we can do, but what Jesus has done. So when he says that Jesus says, we, uh, whoever believes in him is not condemned, we take our sins seriously by looking to the one who cannot condemn us anymore, but bring us back into his presence. 
bring us back into that fellowship that John is talking about in his letter. And so what we understand and what we see that, the, the, that Jesus is the answer to our sin problem. And Jesus had to come and dwell among us to deal with that sin problem. He had to take on the form of man. He had to descend upon our earth, humble himself. He had to live this perfect life in which he did. And he had to become the sacrifice on our behalf. It dealt finally with the sin problem that we all have. And he had to show that he was bigger than that sin problem that we all have by raising again from the dead, which he did. This eternal life that Jesus speaks of in John 3, this fellowship that we have that, he, that John speaks of in his letter is this union and intimacy, this presence with God that we get to experience through the person of Jesus on the basis of Jesus' merits, on the basis of what he did. And when we put our faith and trust in him, what is the promise? You're not condemned. You have eternal life. Life that begins now. But what I also, if you want to take this even a step further, which I think, let's, let's do that. Turn over to, to, to Hebrews chapter 4. So having fellowship with God is why Jesus came and dwelt among us. And it's this faith that grants us this fellowship. But what, what the life of Christ also does is that it moves this fellowship from a, mere constant, from a mere abstract thing to an actual physical reality. How so? So uh, let me read Hebrews 4.15. This is a verse that some of us might be familiar with. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Read that last part again. Talking about Jesus, he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Put some flesh to this for a second. Did Jesus ever give, get tempted by lust? If, if, if this is true... Yeah, but he was without sin. Did Jesus ever maybe get tempted to, to give in to some kind of anger that was unrighteous? Yeah, but he didn't sin. Do you think Jesus ever felt deep pits of anxiety and just, you know, wanted to do something different? No. Yeah, he probably did, but his desire and heart was for the will of the Father. Do you think Jesus ever felt weak? Do you think Jesus ever suffered? Of course we know that. He felt and experienced all those things, yet without sin. So, but here, here, here's the point. Here's what the life of Christ does for us. We can go on and on. And as we draw it out, as we think about Jesus being tempted, remember, temp, being tempted is not sinning. We are tempted by things, but being tempted doesn't mean we're actually doing the sinning, right? Uh, and so we have to understand that when we could go on and on about how Jesus might have been tempted 
And it might make us a little bit uncomfortable because we think about the ways in which we're tempted and we experience brokenness. It's like, oh man, ah, what does that mean? Right? But, but here's the point. This fellowship that we have with Jesus isn't this shallow, abstract thing in which we kind of like, ah, I wonder what it's like. Jesus lived here. So when it says that we have a Savior who's able to sympathize with us, it's because we have a Savior who lived here, who experienced the things that we went through, who understands what we went through, who understands when we are weak, what it might be like to tend to, what it might be like to give into temptation. We have a Savior who went through the same things that we did yet without sin. So who better than to go and call on for help? And that's what it says in verse 16. Verse 16 is like the exclamation mark of this fellowship that we have. So Jesus understands. He sympathizes with us. He, he gets it. And, and the response of the believer and how we engage in this fellowship is in verse 16. So he's, uh, the author says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. So when we go to Jesus, we're not just getting a sympathizing high priest. We're not just getting someone who understands what we're going through, but we are lavished with grace. We are lavished with favor. We are lavished with love and we're lavished with help. This is how we take our sin seriously. We go to Jesus. We go to the one who can give us the thing that actually is going to heal us and transform us and help push away the darkness that's still in us. Why would we go to ourselves when we're oftentimes so broken still? We so often still give in to our fears and anxieties and sins. Why would we go to someone like us when we will oftentimes experience shame and guilt? Why would we go to ourselves when we can go to the one who has everything we need, who understands our burdens, who understands the things that we struggle with? And so, so we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us because he dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But there's one more layer to this that I think is also really important to note. John makes note of it in his letter. Um, we won't linger here too much, but I think it's also important to note as we think about experiencing this eternal life and this fellowship with the Father that ultimately we receive through the person of Jesus. Look back in verse 3 of John's uh, letter, 1 John. And we got a lot of Johns today. He says in verse 3, um, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father. So, so what does he mean by this fellowship with us? So he, he, remember, he's, he's saying that like, he's trying to testify to this group of people um, who are uh, maybe tempted to believe something different from the gospel. He's trying to remember that Jesus actually lived to, so that we might have fellowship and eternal life with him, presence with him now. And what that does, not only does that bring us in union with the Father, not only does that bring us relationship and unity with God, but it also brings us into a new family. Fellowship with God brings us into a new community in which we get to, as Jesus came to this earth and incarnated to us, as he came and dwelt among us, we then get to show and follow suit by incarnating to one another. Meaning what? Lots of things. 
But primarily what John is getting at here is that the fellowship that we have with Jesus brings us into a family, i.e. the church. The church. And it is oftentimes is through the fellowship with one another in which we get to experience a deeper fellowship with Christ. It is a fellowship with one another in which we oftentimes get to experience the fellowship of Christ. Our knowing of Jesus and experiencing his love and grace oftentimes will be seen, felt, and made manifest through his body, through the church, as imperfect as she is. But this is why the church is so important. This is why the church is so important. There's a lot of things I could say right now, um, but, but let me just ask you to think about just a few things, a few questions. Could it be that Jesus uses his body, uses the local churches or the church at large? Could it be that the church, he uses the body of Christ to help us experience the riches of his grace and mercy and ultimately produce a greater love and joy in him? Could it be that as we dwell among one another, as we share spaces, as we share dinner tables, as we share our lives with one another, that we can experience more of Christ because we are around other believers who also have his spirit? Could it be that, that, that the church, the body of Christ, is a tangible way in which we get to experience more of our Savior and this eternal life that we will that we have now. And, and here's the thing. The goal of church is not community. Community is not the goal of church. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but what I am saying is that the church community, being around one another, ultimately helps us experience Jesus in ways far deeper than we could ever do in isolation. Amen. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There is no such thing as trying to, to follow Jesus on your own. You need the church. You need the church. And as, you, as I look around this room right now, like I see faces, and as, as I see each one of y'all's faces, a lot of y'all, I also have stories in my own heart, in my own life, how I've been so encouraged to follow Jesus, how my affections for him been so stirred and magnified because of each one of you. I'm looking at, like, I, I could go on and stories, but I've already been told that I can't preach until one today, so I'm not going to. But, but here's, here's the point, is that the body of Christ helps us experience the fellowship we have with God in deeper ways. And so Jesus, coming to this earth, enabled us to experience life in him. And it also enabled us uh, to have a new family. He dwelt among us to give us life and hope. He dwelt among us so that we might not be condemned, but might have eternal life with him. He dwelt among us so that we might experience his presence, not just in the future way, but also now. And we, he um, came and dwelt among us so that we can ultimately have his spirit within us and that we know what it means to follow him. So Ben, you guys can go ahead and come on up. But um, so what we, under, what we understand about Jesus dwelling among us is that his life was real. He came, he walked on the grounds that we did. He experienced the things that we did, but yet without sin. And he did these things so that we might have eternal life. And so when we take communion, 
This is what we are reminding our souls of. We are reminding our souls um, of just the hope that we have in Jesus. So we take, when we take, when we drink of the juice, representing his blood spilled for us on the cross, we do so reminding ourselves that because of the blood of Christ, you are no longer condemned. Paul says in Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And as we take the bread representing the body of Christ, we remember because of his sacrifice on the cross, because of his resurrection, we get to experience fellowship with him. We get to experience his presence. We get to go to him in our weaknesses, expecting to receive grace, love, and mercy. So our response to God, Jesus dwelling among us isn't to try harder, isn't trying to claw our way back to him, isn't trying to just earn our way, but rather our response is trusting in his finished work, that he was enough. It was enough. And so just as Ryan mentioned earlier, there's a couple of practice notes. We have communion set up just a little bit differently today. Um, we actually have some bread uh, on the sides that's kind of been broken up. Um, the juice is just in the cups. Uh, so I know some of us have a habit of when we take it, we shake it and don't do that. It might be a mess. But uh, uh, we do also have the old ones as well, if that's more comfortable for you. But um, they all, the bread is also all gluten-free. So we just want to make sure uh, y'all are aware of that. But what, we ask, what I ask for y'all, if you are a believer in Christ this morning, as you take the elements, uh, let me encourage you to let, let your souls be reminded of what Jesus did for you. You are never not in need of a reminder of what Christ has done. And let communion serve this purpose. Let it be an act of worship in which you are just thanking God for his kindness towards you. And if you're not a believer in here, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, when we would ask for you, you would refrain um, from taking the elements. This is just, this is for believers. And, and, and again, um, it's for those who believe that Jesus has uh, live the life that he did so that we might have life in him. But we would ask you to consider Jesus. I would ask you to consider um, what, what, what is your hesitation? But ultimately we see that Jesus stepped into our world um, so that we might experience life in him. Um, John Piper, he says it like this, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And we are get to be satisfied in him now because of this perfect work of his son. And so as we think about Jesus stepping us, stepping into our world so that we might experience his world, let that just fuel our worship this morning. Let's just respond in a way that reminds our hearts of where our hope is. And so God, we thank you for your life. We thank you that you didn't leave us in a place where we are gonna be condemned, eternally separated from you, but rather you gave your son to dwell among us, God, so that we might have life in him. And so I ask now, Lord, that you would just lead our hearts to be in awe of who you are, lead our hearts just to worship you, and would that just fill our affections and our souls, knowing that ultimately every good thing that we can ever experience and know is to be found in you. And so we love you. In your son's name, amen.